Amen. Thank you, Pastor. Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. You can go ahead and turn there if you have a copy of God's Word with you tonight. We're in a series on this chapter of Paul's letters to the church, Paul's letter to the church at Colossae that we're calling Christ-Centered Living. How to live our lives with Jesus at the center of everything. And uh, the title of my sermon tonight is Christ and the New Life. Christ and the New Life. If you have found your spot in Colossians chapter 3, we're going to go down to verse 12. And our text tonight will be verses 12 through 14. So let's read God's word. The Bible says, Put on, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercies, kindness, humbleness of mind, Meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another and forgiving one another. If any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. And above all these things, put on charity, which is the bond of perfectness. Let's pray. Father, we come to your word tonight because we believe though the the flower fades and the grass withers it is your word that will stand forever we know that we need your word more than we need bread that it sustains us that it creates life in those who don't know you that it sustains the the life in our soul for those who do know you and call you father so bless us as we listen to your word as we learn from your word May it transform us and may we leave this place different people than as we came in. We pray for your help and it's for Jesus' sake that we ask this. Amen. It was April 28th of last year and ABC News reporter Will Reeve, son of Christopher Reeve, had his most famous uh, appearance on the Good Morning America rundown, or perhaps infamous. Will was short on time that morning, and he was filming from home, as a lot of people were doing uh, during COVID. And he he sat down in front of his camera, and uh, he he was almost ready for the interview, almost ready for the rundown that, that millions of people all over the country would be watching. He had his shirt on, he had a nice tie, he had a nice blazer, a little like the blazer he's wearing in this picture. But there was one problem. When Will got ready for the interview that morning, he forgot something. And in living out a nightmare that people all over the world have had for ages, he didn't have his pants We used a different picture. I'm new here. I didn't know what the boundaries were, so I just used this one. It felt safe. Thought about just putting like a Fellowship Baptist Church logo over the lower area of the screen. Will thought it would be okay, I suppose, because, you know, the camera was centered in on his face. But... For some reason, a director decided to switch to the wide-angle lens. And people all across this great country saw 
Will Reeves' white knees at the bottom of their television while they were eating breakfast. What was his problem? Well, well, he finished undressing from the night before. He got that part down. He just didn't finish dressing. Now, this is comical. It wasn't comical for him, of course. It's comical for us to think about that. Paul, Paul is writing about something similar, but in a much, much more serious vein. When, when Paul says put on, the word translated put on is in duo, which actually means to dress or clothe oneself. That's the metaphor Paul has decided to use when he talks about putting off the old life ways that we talked about last week and putting on the new life ways. As believers, we, we have clothes, we have characters we have, I think, members on the earth is the term Paul used, that we have to put off. And not just once, but there has to be a pattern of putting off. You don't have one battle against sin. You, you go to war against sin. That's what it's like to be a Christian with the sin nature that is still within us. But, but there's more than that. There's more than putting off our sin. Being a Christian doesn't just mean there's certain things I can't do anymore, although it, it doesn't mean less than that. It means I have to put something on. There there are some spiritual clothes that you and I have to take off every day. But our routine in the morning isn't finished until we get dressed. And so it is in the Christian life. You see, Christ-centered living involves not only denying the old ways that we have been saved from, but embracing the new ways that we've been saved to. Christ-centered living not only means turning, on back, turning our back on our sin, but turning to what we are being made in Jesus. When Christ enters our lives, our old clothes of sin must be put off over and over again. But that is not all. There was a, a practice in the early churches that Paul could be alluding to. And, and, and some of the Christians and some of the churches in the first and second century would go down in the water in their regular clothing. And then after their baptism, they would be, the church would give them a white robe. And it symbolized that even though they weren't perfect, and even though they would still make mistakes, and even though they would still sin, they had embarked on a new way of living. That their baptism represented. Things were going to be different now. And so it should be. That is what these verses are all about. Putting on this new life clothing. Now Paul's going to tell them what to put on, but he does something first. And this is really important. In the first part of verse 12, we saw it together. We have the incentive before we have the description. The incentive comes first. Before he tells them how they should be living, what they should be putting on, what this new life clothing looks like, he gives them an incentive. And here's what it is in a nutshell, that God has chosen them, made them holy, and that he loves them. First of all, Paul tells them they are, 
they are chosen, that they are, they are the elect. Now, when we come up against this doctrine of election, we encounter something that, that some Christians have exaggerated, and other Christians have responded by ignoring it. But like any doctrine of the Bible, it's there to comfort us and not to confuse us. A couple things to keep in mind. When we think about being chosen, what that means, when the Bible teaches that we are chosen, it doesn't negate all the other stuff the Bible teaches about our will and our ability to make decisions. And then secondly, and I think this is the most important thing, when you read about election in the Bible, it's always in the context of being in Christ. So that God doesn't arbitrarily pick sinners and make them righteous and justified. If God did that, then he would not be righteous or just. God doesn't elect certain people in themselves to salvation and elect certain people in themselves to condemnation. Actually, we're all condemned. Well, then how do you become elect? Well, God's choice is that everyone in Christ would be his people. That everyone who is in Christ would be saved from their sin. That everyone who is in Christ would be made righteous. So, who are the chosen? Whoever's in Christ. How do I get in Christ? Who can be in Christ? That's the good news. Anyone and everyone can be in Christ. Whoever believes. If you trust in Jesus, you are therefore chosen to receive all the benefits that come with being in Jesus. God has decided where this bus is going. We have to decide whether or not we're going to get on it. That's what the doctrine means. Who can believe? Well, the God that Peter said desires no one to perish and wants everyone to repent is the same God that Isaiah speaks of who says, look to me and be saved all the ends of the earth. Anyone and everyone can believe in Jesus. And if you believe in Jesus, then you're chosen by God for salvation and all the benefits that come with that. Not because of you. Hey, let's not get away from verse number one of chapter three. Because you are in Christ. The Colossians are chosen then for all the blessings that come with being in Jesus. But not only are they chosen, they are holy. How are they holy? Because of the perfect righteousness of Jesus that is credited to them. Once again, they are holy because they are in Jesus. When God sees his children, he sees them through his son. Otherwise, we couldn't be his children. The Colossians couldn't have been his children. But we are adopted. We are made his own. And because God is a holy God, he's, he can only have holy children. And that is how God saw the Colossians. They were holy. Not only are they holy, and not only, only are they chosen, but they are the beloved the beloved. How can they be the beloved of God? When their lives were marked by paganism and idolatry and sin. You know the answer. So does every kid that was in Sunday school. Jesus. In Christ, they get chosen for all the blessings and benefits of salvation. In Christ, because they are in Christ, they are holy before God. And in Christ, they are loved. Now, why is it so vital that Paul gives them an incentive before he gives them 
the description of what they need to put on. Why? Is this order just arbitrary? Is it random? No, it's not random at all. Paul is not saying, this is the kind of life you need to leave, this is the kind of behavior you need to have. No, that's not that at all. Paul is telling them, this is who you are. This is how God looks at you. This is the position that you're in because of Christ. Now, here is how you need to behave. See, the gospel is not live like this, live this way, and then you can make yourself right with God. No, friends, if that was the case, no one in this room would ever be right with God. You would either be in the dumps or in despair all the time, knowing you're not right with God, or you would be prideful and completely oblivious and think you're okay. No, the gospel is not live this way and make yourself right with God. The gospel is Jesus has made you right with God. Therefore, live this way. As D.L. Moody said, we don't work to the cross or no one would get there. We work from it. Paul doesn't make this appeal on the basis of guilt, but on the basis of their status in Jesus. You are chosen. You are holy. You are loved because of Christ. Now, here is what God is calling you to put on. But don't forget who you are. Don't forget that the God that is calling you to do, that is calling you to do this He sees you as his chosen. He sees you as holy. He sees you as loved. (laughs) Now the description, the second part of verse 12 that we read together. This is what the new life clothing looks like. Number one, bowels of mercies. It means compassion. It's It's an interesting phrase, isn't it? Different than how we would talk, but maybe not so different. In the ancient world, different parts of the body were used to speak of, of the mind and the heart. So that, uh, that their gut wasn't just considered physically, but, but it was considered uh, metaphorically. Now, we actually, we actually still kind of do this. Um, if you're really uh, upset or concerned about something... Maybe you have something you're terrified of tomorrow or next week, a meeting at work, a a discussion you have to have with the in-laws or something is happening with your your kid. You've got to address it in the coming weeks and you feel that, um, what's it called, you know, knots in the stomach? Now, of course, it has nothing to do with your stomach, we suppose. That's what it feels like, doesn't it? Bowels of mercies is like that, but here's the difference. Having bowels of mercies doesn't just mean you have this this, this tension and this worry and this concern about yourself. It means having that same feeling, but for other people. She is sick. You have knots in the stomach. He's lost, and you have knots in the stomach. They're going through a hard time. Their kids are going through a hard time, and you get knots in the stomach. That's having bowels of mercies. But it's that feeling for other people. Then there's kindness. Kindness is the next thing there to put on. This, this means to be helpful or, or, or generous in one's disposition toward others. It is often used in the Bible to describe God and how God sees us. But it's also how we're called to think about other people and, and how we are to treat them. 
It's mentioned as a fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. Then there's humbleness of mind. Now, Paul could have just said humility, and this is basically what this is, is humility. But notice, it's specifically a humility that begins in the mind. And that's because there can, there can be a difference between uh, pretending to be humble or projecting yourself to be humble or, 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 or being satisfied because other people think you're a humble person and actually being humble. We know the difference there because we've all been on, on that more outward side of it. But being humble doesn't mean I've convinced other people that I'm humble. It means in my mind, internally, inside, I'm actually humble. Not that I think less of myself, but that I think of myself less. Humility. They're also called to put on meekness. Meekness is the opposite of harshness. Now, the ancient world didn't celebrate weakness. The Greeks didn't celebrate weakness. The Romans didn't celebrate weakness and, uh, or, or meekness. And, and honestly, when you think about the virtue of, of meekness outside of the influence of Christianity, uh, no one has ever really celebrated meekness. When we think of great, successful people, we think of people who, who go out, get the job done, and step on as many people as they need to to do that. And yet, Jesus Christ, who is the the perfect, only obedient, ultimate human person, wasn't like that at all. His triumph came from the moment where he was executed like a criminal. They're called to meekness. Meekness is not the absence of strength. Rather, it's, it's the presence of a quiet strength. It's keeping your strength under control. Fifth, Paul describes the clothing this way. They are to put on patience, long suffering. It literally means that, suffering long. (laughs) Because that's what what Christian patience is. Um, This this isn't limited to uh, waiting for something nice to be done for us. You ask your kid to to take out the garbage and it's been 10 minutes and they haven't done anything. Man, I'm really patient. Or you have to wait in the drive-thru at Sonic for 10 minutes instead of 4 minutes. And you think, I'm really patient. Long-suffering is a little bit more than that. It means we're actually going through something difficult, something that's affecting us, something that's hurting us. But we suffer long. We keep going. It's enduring insult or injury. For a long time. This is what the new clothing looks like. Not very exciting, is it? Compassion to the hurting. Kindness in your disposition to others. Humility in your mind. A meek attitude. A long-suffering disposition. Do you know what one person sums up all of these things perfectly? Our Lord Jesus Christ. No one was ever compassionate. No one was ever as compassionate as Jesus was compassionate. No one was was ever more kind 
then Jesus is kind. And when you think about Philippians 2, how much that God the Son set aside when he came to earth and lived and suffered and was tempted and was, was tortured and was killed. No one has ever been humble like Jesus has been humble. No one was ever meek like Jesus was meek. And did, did anyone ever have long-suffering or patience like Jesus had and has? He's patient with you. He's patient with me. Putting on the new garment, you see, means adorning ourselves in the character of the person of Jesus. These aren't random personality traits. This isn't just a list of stuff that Paul came up with. No, the new garment is putting on the character of Christ. That's what the Colossians are supposed to do. Now, now what happens if they put this on? What actions will, will occur? What kind of behavior will occur if, if this is the spiritual garment that they're wearing every day? Verse 13, we have the function of the new clothes. This is what happens as they put them on. They'll forbear one another and they will forgive one another. By the way, as, as a Christian, you can't just be a forbearing or forgiving uh, person. There has to be a one another in there somewhere. Which is why the Christian life isn't lived alone. It's lived in community. This is why coming to church is important. I don't have to tell you that you're here. This is why connection groups at fellowship are so important. There, there's a lot of the New Testament you really can't live out without one another's in your life. You can't just you know, put in your AirPods and listen to, the, to popular sermons and read Christian books. There has to be some people you have to forbear, that literally means put up with, and some people you have to forgive if you're going to live like Jesus. So as they put on these new life clothes, then, then something will happen. They'll be forbearing with other people, and there will be, they will be forgiving to other people. The, the actions that, that flow out of these virtues are real and intangible. Now you can say all you want, yeah, I'm meek. I'm humble, I'm kind, but, but, but it really, the rubber really meets the road when, when you have to ask yourself, do I really put up with other people? Is there someone seeking forgiveness from me and I'm holding it back from them? If you're wearing the clothes, then these are the, the, the kind of functions that you'll perform. These are the kind of things you will be able to do when you put on the character of Jesus. Because it turns out, as believers put on the character of Jesus, we start treating people like Jesus treats people. And no one is as forbearing and as forgiving as Jesus is. See, if the church at Colossae is to survive, the members must put up with one another. I don't know who first came up with this, but you've probably heard it. I guess it's been around a long time because it resonates with people. To live above with the saints we love, oh, that will be glory. But to live below with the saints we know, well, that's another story. You laugh because it's true. That's true for me as well. 
Now, if we want to imagine that the first century churches were perfect and didn't have any problems and everybody was just, it was kind of this utopia, you can imagine that if you want. But Paul evidently thought there was a need to put up with people and to forgive them. That means they had some pretty serious problems. And they needed the character of Jesus to deal with that. Well, Paul, what's the standard for forgiveness? People like asking that in the Bible, don't they? Peter asked something similar. (laughs) Because if we're going to be asked by God to do something like forgive, we want to be able to set some limits. So, Paul, what's the standard for forgiveness? Perhaps the Colossians are thinking as this letter is being read out loud. And can you imagine their hearts just drop when he says, Even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye? That's the standard. How much has Jesus forgiven you? How much has Jesus forgiven you? You know, being a believer in Jesus means that the the standard of forgiveness that God expects of you is infinitely higher than those who are unsaved. There are things that Christians are asked to do that unbelievers are not asked to do. This is one of them. But God is not asking, when God tells you, God's not going to give us a command that he's not going to equip us to do. And, and listen, when God tells you to forgive as much as Jesus has forgiven you, he is not asking you to show anything that you have not already experienced. You can't say, I don't know what that's like. Of course you know what it's like. Think about your sin that put Jesus on the cross. Think about it, what, was it, what it was like when you got saved and that the, the burden of guilt and knowing that you were not right with God was just lifted from you. Whether that, that was in the moment or it took you time to realize it. That's how other people need to feel in a much smaller way when we forgive them. Christians are called to forgive like no one else because we have been forgiven like no one else. See, God calls us to extravagant forgiveness because of all the people on the globe, we know what that's like. Because that's precisely what God has done for us. Now, here's the, here's the key. It's in verse 14. In verse 14, Paul likens charity or love to the belt that holds this garment together. It's, it's as if the apostle is envisioning this man dressing his body with all these flowing garments of the day. And then it occurs to the man that he can't wear this uh, comfortably and with grace unless he, unless he ties it all together and, and keeps it all on. And what's the belt that he uses to do that? Well, Paul says that it's love. That's what ties everything together. It's not just another virtue. It is the completer. Kent Hughes says it's, it's possible to have some of the five virtues and not have love. But it is not possible, it, it is impossible to have love and to not have all of the virtues. Love is what ties it all together. Love is the key. Think about it like this. No matter how much they progressed in their spiritual development, no matter how much the Colossians grew in their walk with Christ... What kind of place would the church at Corinth be if you took all of the love out of it? Despite what they know about God, despite of how talented and how gifted they are, if you take away love, 
from the church at Colossae, what kind of place is it? Not a very good place to imagine. How much should we as Christians value love? How much weight should we put on this attribute of love? Well, Paul helps us in 1 Corinthians 13, doesn't he? Paul imagines a hypothetical scenario in which he could do a lot of interesting things, move mountains, communicate with angels. Anybody here able to do that? Uh, If you think you can, maybe I don't want to know. Paul was being hypothetical, of course. Paul imagined this state where he had all knowledge. We know how wise Paul was. Read Romans. What would, it, what would a Paul with all knowledge be like? A Paul that could move mountains, a Paul that could talk to angels. If you think that'd be a pretty amazing person, Paul says, no, without love, I would be nothing. That's how much the Christian is supposed to value love. We look at 1 Corinthians 13 and we think it's inspirational. We use it uh, for, for pillows and for Valentine's Day decorations. But by, at the end of the day, do we see just how serious that statement is? That without love, we are nothing? Do we actually believe it? Do I actually believe it? If, if the Colossians are going to put on these new clothes, that the very ultimate thing they must put on, the thing that binds everything together, they, the thing that must be added is love. Those who have become God's own people must adorn themselves with Christ's own character. If you're one of God's people, you are called to wear Jesus' character. If you're here listening and you're a hurt non-Christian, maybe there's a point in the past where you would have considered yourself a Christian, but now you don't, or maybe you were raised in a Christian home, but you're considering walking away from it all. Uh, uh, You know, a text or preaching like this may really aggravate you because you may hear all this and say, yeah, those are all wonderful, good things, but the Christians I've known, the family I knew, the friends that I had, they never lived like that, and that's what turns me off about Christianity. Listen, if that's how you feel, I'm not going to tell you that those people were actually a lot better than you thought they were. It's possible that some of them weren't Christians, or it's also possible that because they were human, they just messed up. Here's what I do want you to know, however. In Christ, in Christ, you have someone who is altogether merciful. If you're turned off from Christianity because you've known really prideful people... Listen, in Jesus, you have someone who is altogether humble. Don't let your assessment of whether or not you're going to be a Christian be based on other Christians. Because Christianity is about following Jesus. Look to him. Now, for for us that that know Christ and that are saved, if you're a Christian tonight, my question for you is really this. Do you dress... Like a Christian. Do you dress like a Christian? I know that physically, literally, people should dress appropriate. That's not what I'm talking about. When it comes to our actual wardrobe, those things are somewhat easy. It doesn't take a radical work of grace to, to stick out in your clothing. Mormons do it. Muslims do it. 
That doesn't take a miracle of God. Do you know what does take a work of grace? Do you know what does take a miracle? Is getting up every day in a, in a consumer culture where everyone's focused on themselves and, and having bowels of mercies, being compassionate toward other people, putting on that in the morning, that, that takes grace. That takes a transformed life. How about getting up and, and facing your day and facing the people you meet with humility in your mind? How about putting on that garment? That takes God's help. That takes someone who has been changed from the old life into the new. How about wearing meekness or, or wearing kindness? How about wearing patience in an instant culture where everyone wants everything right now and they can't see past the next five minutes? Christian, what are you wearing? What are you wearing? If you have a disagreement with your spouse tomorrow, what, are you going to be wearing Jesus' character? If, if someone at church rubs you the wrong way, and that will inevitably happen as long as you have relationships with people at, at the church, someone's going to rub you the wrong way. But when that happens, what are you going to be wearing? Will you have the character of Jesus so you can forbear and forgive? What about when your kids are at home and they're not listening? I don't know what that's like. My kids always listen. Eventually. that happens, what are you going to be wearing? You know, it's pretty terrifying to think about being, being a reporter and being on Good Morning America without your pants. But you, and that's funny, but you know, something that's, that's far more tragic, that's far more devastating to real people's lives is that, is that every day Christians get up and they go to work and, and they go to Walmart and they meet with other people and they forget to put on the character of Jesus. And they're still wearing the old life clothes. God help us. Those who have become God's own people must adorn themselves with Christ's own character. So here's my challenge for you tonight. We need to come before God tonight and ask Him to help us put on what He has called us and enabled us to put on. God, when I get up Thursday morning and I'm away from church and I'm away from the, the excellent worship music that we had and, and the encouragement of other Christians, when I'm out in the real world on Thursday and I have to deal with my, my normal life, God, help me to put on the character of Jesus. When people look at me, God, help, help them to see humility and, and meekness and patience and kindness and compassion and love. Can we ask for God's help tonight? in putting on what he has called us to put on. Let's all stand.